Hey everybody, before we get into the show, I wanted to let you know we've got another live show coming up. We will be back at Maya Cinemas on Thursday, May 23rd for Furiosa, the latest in the Mad Max series. We are so excited for this one. Joining me to talk about it, we've got Sam Novak, Shahab Zargari, and Tony Gonzalez. A great lineup. It's going to be an awesome movie. We are so excited to talk about it. So make sure to check the show notes. There are opportunities to win tickets. You could also buy tickets. And we hope to see you there Thursday, May 23rd, 6 p.m. at Maya Cinemas for Furiosa. Alright, welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. But today on the show, we are returning to our Breaking It Apart series. For those of you who have not heard an episode of Breaking It Apart before, what we do is we twist this little format that we've created for ourselves here and we do it backwards and instead look at a classic and talk about the movies it inspired. And today we are going to be talking about John Carpenter's The Thing and joining me, we've got two first-time co-hosts to the show. We've got Tony Strauss from Wang's Chop. And we've got Troy Howarth, who just wrote and released the book Assault on the System, the Nonconformist Cinema of John Carpenter. So you might say Troy is a bit of an expert on the subject, and it was great to have him here to talk about John Carpenter and The Thing and some of these movies that may have been inspired by The Thing. I think we got a really great list of movies here that we end up talking about. Great conversation. Of course, this is coming out on... Halloween Eve, and uh, I've been getting in the spirit, watching a lot of John Carpenter, watching a lot of, I've actually been watching through all the Friday the 13th movies, might have a special episode on some of those coming up soon, hint, hint, but uh, yeah, getting into a whole bunch of horror movies lately, because that's what you do at this time of the year. So I want to remind you all, as always, to make sure you're subscribed to Piecing It Together on your podcast app of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And do not forget to join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we continue the conversation about all the movies we talk about here on the show. So we got a nice long conversation about horror and suspense and monsters and creatures and body horror and great practical effects, and all the stuff that goes along with John Carpenter movies. So let's get into it. All right, so this should be fun today, everybody. We are going to be talking about John Carpenter's The Thing and a lot about John Carpenter in general. Uh, With me today, we've got Tony Strauss, who anybody in the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces group probably knows already. And then we also have a guy who wrote the book on John Carpenter. We've got Troy Howarth with us as well. Hey guys, how you doing? Good. How are you? Doing great. Thanks. Yeah. This this is gonna be uh, this is gonna be fun. I've you know I'm sure everybody here is in the the Halloween spirit, watching a lot of horror movies. I I picked out quite a few uh, classic John Carpenter to watch. So I, I'm I'm excited. I'm ready to talk about the man. But I want to start off 
before we get into the thing, because we're going to specifically be talking about the thing uh, with the bulk of this conversation, that's the movie that we're going to do the whole breaking it apart thing with. But, you know, really, we could have done so many John Carpenter films. Like, there's so many of them that have had such a huge influence on so many other filmmakers and other movies as well. I I guess this is something we could have talked about at the end, but I kind of wanted to bring it up first. Do either of you have a favorite as far as his films are concerned? Well, um, this is Troy. Um, my favorite is Ghosts of Mars. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> my favorite is The Thing. So that's that's why um, I'm particularly glad to be here today. That works. <laughs> nice. What about you, Tony? Same thing. The Thing is definitely my top carpenter film beautiful this should be a lot of fun then so uh one more thing before we get into the puzzle pieces and all that why don't we get you guys to introduce yourselves to our listeners let's start with you troy well uh i'm a writer who specializes in european cult cinema typically uh, a lot of italian and spanish films in particular um started off writing about these movies many many years ago when i was actually just you know in college uh, my first book was about Mario Bava. It was called The Haunted World of Mario Bava. Hmm. And uh, then from there, after a big break, I came back into writing more books after oh, doing a lot of film reviewing and, and DVD reviewing online and, and doing articles for publications like Wings Chop, amongst others. Um, sure. Got into doing more books, including a revised version of the Bava book. But uh, John Carpenter's always been really near and dear to my heart, so that was a project I knew I was definitely wanting to do very much for many years, and uh, just took me a long time to kind of get to the place where I was ready to do it, but now here we are. Nice, nice. And uh, Tony, tell people about yourself. Um, I'm Tony Strauss. I, uh, I'm one-third of the small but tenacious publishing house, WK Books, along with... Uh, my cohorts, Brian Harris and Tim Paxton. I initially started out writing about film back in the 90s for uh, a magazine called Scarlet Street, which was published by Richard Valley. And I wrote for them for a few years and kind of got out of it for a while uh, after the magazine stopped when uh, Richard Valley passed away. And Brian Harris roped me in to start writing reviews for a website he was doing called Wildside Cinema. And then later on, he decided to start up Wang's Chop Magazine with Tim Paxton. And I came aboard as a writer with issue number two of Wang's Chop. And then by issue four, I was part of the crew uh, in the editing capacity. And now, I'm editor-in-chief and layout and design on Wank's Chop. And uh, we also publish Monster Magazine and several other film books. The uh, Assault on the System, the nonconformist cinema of John Carpenter, the one that uh, Troy wrote, is uh, actually our third book that we've published from Troy. First mm -hmm. one was his book on Klaus Kinski. And the second one was a book on Paul Nashi. And for the last two of those i have uh edited and designed both books as well very cool so that's kind of what i do with all my spare time <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah you, you do seem to be busy a lot with with a lot of that stuff so uh absolutely Th this is uh an exciting project though i'm sure you know talking about john carpenter to, i know 
I know you love uh, the work of this this man and uh, these films, and really, it's going to be a lot of fun here to talk about the thing. So let's start jumping into it. Uh, I'm sure we will we'll talk about the movie as well as Carpenter himself and uh, a lot of the stuff that surrounds it throughout this conversation. I think let's start diving into some of these movies that we think were themselves inspired by the thing. Uh, let, let's start with you, Tony. I've been waiting to get you on the show for a while, so. <laughs> what do you got for your first piece here? Uh, well, my first puzzle piece is kind of an obvious one in that I see it almost as a remake of the thing in a different setting, which is uh, George P. Cosmatos's Leviathan uh, from mm. 1989, starring Peter Weller. Um, and it's got Richard Crenna and Amanda Pays and Daniel Stern, Ernie Hudson. It's uh, it takes place at a remote location, much like the thing. Only this is an underwater location. They find a derelict Russian ship where something horrible has happened. Again, very much like the thing with the Norwegian camp. Um, it's got a morphing alien that spreads like a virus, gestates inside people. It mutates people and passes from body to body. I mean, it's got almost structurally beat for beat almost all the same elements as the thing while still kind of being at its own fun departure um sure. but th there's little touches like there's a scene in leviathan where a, where the blood supply is broken into and in the end spoiler alert there the monster is destroyed by a demolition charge uh hmm. and there's even a similar one-liner in uh at the end of the thing, McCready throws the dynamite at the monster and says, yeah, well, fuck you, too. And uh, <laughs> Peter Weller does it at the end of the thing or at the end of Leviathan and says, say, ah, motherfucker, and throws it into the monster's <laughs> mouth. So, yeah, beat for beat. That movie is, to me, like an unofficial remake of the thing. So that's great. Yeah, I, I love that, too, that that uh, connection with the ending there, too, because after after being stuck dealing with this thing, you know, for all this time and, and uh, to just let it out like that is uh, it's a great cathartic way to, to end it for the character. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. That's a, that's a great one to, uh, to kick it off with Troy. What do you got for your first one? Well, uh, this is one that back in my days when I was loyally watching the X-Files, I discovered an episode called Ice, which is actually from the first season. Uh, came on in November of 1993 and was written by Glenn Morgan and James Wong, a couple of very familiar names, and um, very overtly influenced by The Thing. Not just by The Thing itself as a film, but also the John W. Campbell novella from 1938, Who Goes There, which was the uh, source of inspiration for The Thing to begin with. And uh, mm. it basically deals with an, an Alaskan uh, kind of outpost, a scientific team that has uh, all died and Mulder and Scully go up there to investigate and see what's going on. And there's, there's all kinds of similarities, obviously, with the uh, wintry snowbound setting and everything else. But it's this extraterrestrial kind of parasite that body hops and uh, goes from host to host and, and puts them into this sort of psychotic uh, mental state. Uh, there's even a dog, as in the thing, Jed the dog, that uh, plays such a big role. Uh, mm. The dog has the ability also to help transmit the disease, and uh, that plays an important part in the in the plot as well. So 
very similar as far as the overall atmosphere and that kind of sense of paranoia and uh, really kind of hopelessness and despair that goes with that kind of setting. You know, we're cut off from civilization and this terrible thing that's going on that's uh, decimating everybody left and right. So um, it's uh, definitely something that was influenced. And in fact, Chris Carter did admit to that, that it was uh, his little homage to the thing. So one of the best nice. episodes, I think. Oh, yeah. The, I, the X-Files being a show that like, takes from so many different you know the different scary stories and things like that to to end up finding influence in in other scary movies is i think bound to happen with that show and uh yeah i think that's a great one right there and you know a funny thing i i had seen the thing you know for the first time probably back in high school or something and i i really kind of barely remembered it because i i hadn't seen it in so so many years i basically remembered the you know creature moments and stuff like that uh but when i rewatched it back in january which was the first time since high school. And then I rewatched it again uh, last week uh, in preparation for this. I was so struck by how damn good that dog is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that dog is a good dog actor. Like, it's amazing. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm going to go with my first piece. And this is a very, very obvious one, I think, but uh, it has to be brought up. Uh, that's Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, uh, which, of course, you've got these characters stuck in this uh, snowy setting. Uh, there, there's the tension of not knowing who is who and whether they're who they say they are, the tight quarters, the no way out, the no escape, and, of course, the Ennio Morricone score, uh, which, of course, used some, uh, you know, reused segments from uh, unused pieces from the thing and uh, really helped set that setting even further than just the fact that it's a bunch of people stuck in the snow and a lot of violence breaks out. Yeah, definitely. I, I have to admit I was going to do that one myself. So, <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's it's like it's a comparison that just like kind of has to be made, you know? Oh, God, yeah. Well, the music, I think, is particularly something that's uh, interesting to touch on because, you know, Morricone, arguably the greatest film composer of all time, certainly my mm -hmm. personal favorite. Um, and in fact, he was not the original choice to score the thing. You know, Jerry Goldsmith was the composer that Carpenter originally wanted, but that didn't work out. Right. Um, he had never won an Oscar. Uh, he'd been nominated a couple times, but had never won. But he finally wins an Oscar for The Hateful Eight, uh, which obviously had the benefit of Tarantino, you know, behind it and all of that. But uh, sure. the funny thing is that, you know, it's, it's of course, the, the original music that was written for the film is beautiful. It's really, really quite good. But there are two pieces of music uh, from the thing that Carpenter did not use in the film because he didn't think that they really fit that make their way into the Hateful Eight. So that's a particularly strong uh, little connection, too. That's such an interesting thing. And, you know, it's especially interesting just given, you know, Carpenter being a composer. And I'm sure I'm, you know, far from the first person to ever bring that up. But, uh, you know, the fact that Carpenter is one of the classic you know, film composers and, and to have arguably his best score be, you know, somebody else, but I'm sure he loves having that music in that film, you know, and what having a Morricone score brings to it is probably just, uh, such a source of joy for him. I'd imagine. Now, Troy, didn't, uh, Carpenter end up composing most of the music used in the thing, uh, himself? Not most of it. He did, oh. with Alan Howarth, go through and compose a bunch of little... They're not melodies, per se. They're more sort of mood pieces that are played in the background, sort of droning noises and things like that. 
Um, right. There are certain sequences. The very first piece of music we hear in the film, uh, the opening uh, credits with the spaceship, uh, you know, exploding uh, before it crashes into Earth, and then the thing title burns to the screen, uh, which is an homage, of course, to the original 1951 Howard Hawks film. Mm-hmm. Um, that was by Carpenter and Howarth. Uh, no relation. <laughs> but, uh, there are various different pieces. Um, there's there's uh, a couple of sequences in the film that were kind of rejigged as uh, the film was uh, was being shot. There was some rethinking of things that went on, and Carpenter ended up um, composing certain sections of the film himself. He's always been very insistent that the music is indeed Ennio Morricone's music. Uh, it's primarily, you know, 90% Morricone's music, but there is some Carpenter and Howard music uh, interspersed throughout the film, kind of in a similar style to the music that they did for Christine. Mm. Okay. Now, this isn't really a puzzle piece that I wanted to uh, use, but while we're on the Tarantino thing, I think it should also be pointed out that Reservoir Dogs has uh, some some elements that are similar to the thing as well, uh, especially, re- you know, in regards to an isolated group of co-workers and the increasing paranoia of trying to determine who the other is. Sure. So there's that, 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 uh, that's also got some similarities as well. Although, you know, as we know, Tarantino himself did point out that, uh, hateful eight is definitely heavily inspired by the thing. Right, right. No, absolutely. I, I was thinking of that as well. Reservoir Dogs definitely deals with, uh, you know, that similar tension of, of not knowing, you know, who the other person is. And uh, yeah, no, it, it's I, I think that, you know, obviously Carpenter is a major influence on Tarantino. And I mean, you know, who who, you know, doesn't inspire Tarantino to do stuff. Right, exactly. He is. He wears all of his inspirations on his sleeve. Sure does. Sure does. So, what do you got for your uh, for your next piece, then, uh, uh, Tony? You know, I think I'm going to call out uh, the 2006 film written and directed by James Gunn called Slither. Mm. It's about a small South Carolina town where a extraterrestrial parasite uh, is in a meteor that that crashes into the town. And it starts out by infecting one guy uh, named Grant Grant, played by Michael Rooker. (laughs) And it takes over his body and his mind and begins to grotesquely distort his body. And then it passes from person to person through these nasty little larvae when they burst out of people's bodies and it creates this alien hive mind for all the people that it in inhabits, um, you know, very similar body horror aspects. Um, again, the monster is destroyed by an explosion and actually in slither, there is a character named McCready. So mm. it's mm. clearly a, a bit of a nod on James Gunn's part to Carpenter's film. Uh, you know, you really can't, you really can't argue with that as the, uh, the film Slither itself was kind of an homage to so much sci-fi horror. Yeah, no, that, that's a, that's a fun one. I haven't seen that movie in a while. I remember, uh, I remember it being pretty, pretty crazy and fun. Uh, were you a fan of that one as well, Troy? I have to admit, I haven't seen it. 
Okay. Ah, well, right. there's one for you to check out. Yeah, there I've heard I've heard very good things about it. It's one of those ones that I've always wanted to check out, but no, unfortunately, I haven't gotten around to it yet. All right. Well, uh, what do you got for your next piece then, Troy? Oh, well, I'm going with another one from a sort of similar vintage, 2005. It's a film by Neil Marshall called The Descent, mm. um, which deals with a group of... Uh, friends who go on a sort of spelunking adventure in uh, North Carolina, go into the caves in order to explore. And of course, once they get into the caves, they discover there's a monster on the loose. And it's, uh, it's an interesting setup. It's particularly effective for somebody like me who suffers a little bit from claustrophobia. I find it's a very uncomfortable sure. movie to watch because you're in a film that's set in really sort of narrow confined spaces and it, it really does uh, kind of get under your skin very very similar use of the frame and in terms also i think of uh great sudden of what carpenter would call cheap scares that he's well known for the the, the thing suddenly jumping out of the shadows at you mm -hmm. um, which is not an easy thing to do effectively it's, it's something that carpenter being a guy who tends to kind of uh poo-poo uh, his own work a lot and tends to, you know, act like it's something special. He, he just, you know, he just dismiss, dismisses that, oh, it's just a cheap trick. But it's really something that's very precise in timing that it works. And it does work in his films, and it works in this movie a lot, too. And one of the things that's also interesting about this movie is that in common with both movies, getting into heavy-duty spoilers here for those who haven't seen these two films, but um, the endings for both films were rather problematic. Now, Carpenter's film uh, of course, you know, we have the ending that we know and love that that is, uh, you know, the way the movie went out in theaters. Um, the Universal was not in favor of that ending and, in fact, was a little bit upset with Carpenter that he stuck with his guns going with this downbeat ending. Um, in the case of The Descent, it actually resulted in two separate endings being done. You have one that was done for the U.S. version, which isn't I don't think terribly effective, but the original British ending is much more effective because of course it ends on that note of hopelessness in the same way that the thing does. So um, the th uh, the ending of the thing of course was also changed for television amongst many other changes. Uh, there's a sort of strange, weird uh, Sid Sheinberg edit of the thing that really redoes certain aspects of the film. And uh, that includes the ending as well. So I think in terms of the, the group dynamic, in terms of them being sort of picked off by a creature that's uh, lurking amongst them and uh, the gradual air of distrust and everything else. But in this case, it's a sort of distaff version of it because instead of a all-male ensemble in the thing, here we have a female ensemble, which was kind of interesting. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, The Descent's a fantastic movie. I, I would wager to say it's one of the best horror movies of the last 20 years. Yes, um, yeah, yeah excellent movie. W one quick question, just as a little aside. Um, you you mentioned that John Carpenter tends to kind of talk down his own work a little bit. If if I'm not mistaken, is the thing one that he has been consistently like happy about and, and like talked up a little bit over the years, or or am I wrong about that? Well, the tragedy of the thing, of course, is that you know he he makes this movie that was his first big studio film, his first big budget movie. Um, it was a movie that Universal actually had a lot of faith in. Um, mm -hmm. They were building it up as the summer blockbuster, and they also had another movie in production that year called E.T. that you may have heard of. <laughs> and E.T. 
they didn't really have any faith in E.T. As a matter of fact, it was just something that they kind of let Spielberg do because he had obviously, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark and, and Jaws and so forth. Oh, let him make his little goofy alien movie. It's no big deal. That movie took uh, America and the world by storm. And uh, that really sort of changed the uh, the climate of that particular summer. And so there was no place for the thing. And I think the fact that the thing not only affected his career negatively because it really kind of stopped his upward momentum dead in its tracks, but also because it was a movie that he was very proud of. And uh, right. it wasn't just a movie that didn't do well commercially. You know, sometimes you have movies that come out and they flop at the box office, but uh, the fans really like it or the critics really like it. Nobody liked this movie when it came out in the U.S. Right. Uh, very few people. Uh, Gene Siskel actually gave it a good review. He was one of the few mainstream critics in America that, that stood up for it. Most everybody else dismissed it. Vincent Canby said it was garbage. Uh, Roger Ebert gave it a thumbs down and everything else. So it's a movie he's very proud of. He has uh, said on multiple occasions and, and told me as well that it's the movie that he's proudest of. It's mm. the one that turned out the way he really wanted it to. But of course, you know, the ultimate irony, it's the movie that really kind of took a giant shit on his career in certain respects. Right. So kind of a shame. Yeah. It's crazy when that happens and then for something to go on and just become so beloved anyway. But I mean, yeah, I, I read some of the reviews leading up to this and, uh, man, did, did they shit on this movie? <laughs> it's yeah. just crazy. Yeah. They hated it. They hated it. He was, um, he, he said it, he said he was treated like he was garbage. He was treated like he was slime. I think it was Stuart Cohen who's on the audio commentary, one of several audio commentaries available for the film on the, on the Arrow Blu-ray. And he talks about going to see Carpenter the weekend after the film came out or whatever. And he said he looked like he had aged, you know, five years. Uh, he was just absolutely crestfallen by how the film was received. Again, it, even if the film hadn't been a popular hit, if, if the reviews had been good or if the reviews have been bad, but it made money, you know, you can kind of take comfort in that when everybody's pretty much telling you, God, this movie's awful. <laughs> it, it really um, it really did a number on him. Jeez. Well, I'm going to move on to my next piece here. And uh, this one just so happens to be uh, the first movie we ever covered here on Piecing It Together. And somehow we didn't use the thing as a puzzle piece, but we totally should have. And that is Alex Garland's Annihilation. Uh, a a sci-fi film that's is a pretty trippy movie about this group of female scientists that go into this this weird phenomena in the forest where uh, they call it the shimmer and weird things are happening and as they start to explore it they find basically all the creatures and wildlife are starting to like mutate and blend together and it's a lot of great creature horror and and uh, it kind of has like a big make it or break it ending kind of like the thing and uh yeah it it's just it's a very cool movie a very out there movie and it's got some really inventive uh creature design stuff going on in it which i think definitely lends a hand to uh to the thing nice i got to admit i still haven't seen that one it's on my list but i haven't gotten to it yet oh it's a cool movie it, it's very very out there very it's it's ballsy it tries a lot of interesting things uh, what about you troy have you seen that one i have but it has been some time so i'd need to revisit it i do remember being impressed by it though 
And certainly, um, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought of it before in connection with the thing, but I think I can see what you mean. And yeah, that's definitely something to revisit in the near future, I think. Right on. Yeah, I'm ashamed I haven't watched it yet, considering what a big Alex Garland fan that I am. But oh, He's great. Well, uh, Tony, what do you got for your next one? Um, I got two here, but I think I'm going to pick for my next one the uh, 1987 Jack Shoulder film, The Hidden. Mm. It stars uh, Kyle MacLachlan. Well, at first he introduced he's introduced as an FBI agent chasing a criminal. Uh, but as as the plot progresses, you learn that it's not your average type of criminal. It is an alien life form that is jumping from body to body and driving its hosts to live just extreme adrenaline so they they steal cars they listen to loud music they kill people and they just this life form just rides the host until it's dead and then jumps to another uh host now you know this doesn't have like the same type of body horror that say leviathan and the thing have or slither even but there's there's some pretty good gruesome scenes where the mouth stretches open and it crawls into its next host and you later find out actually that uh the fbi agent played by a kyle mclaughlin is himself an alien life form living inside a human body that has come here to stop the stop the monster there's a uh there's even a scene where the alien transfers into a dog <laughs> there's prominent use of a flamethrower on the alien toward the end uh, in order to defeat the alien, they got to basically push or scare it out of its host where it's open and vulnerable. So uh, Kyle McLaughlin can use his special gun on it. So there's a lot of similarities there with regards to an alien life form using humans to hide in. Because as we all know, man is the warmest place to hide. <laughs> <laughs> so that was another one that came to my mind. Like the first thing I thought of was the flamethrower toward the end. And then I started thinking, yeah, there's a lot of elements in this that were very similar to the thing in regards to alien jumping from host to host. It doesn't replicate. Well, I guess it does in a way, because for all intents and purposes, it looks just like the host. Yeah. Well, I, I haven't seen The Hidden. Uh, it sounds great, though. It sounds like a fun movie. Um but, but yeah, I was just going to say the thing, uh, as far as flamethrowers go, I mean, I don't think it gets much better than, than the thing. Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> well, it's interesting you bring up Jack Shoulder, too, because uh, a couple of years before his previous film was uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which mm -hmm. uh, is kind of divisive among a lot of fans for a variety of reasons. Very strange film, but I'm very fond of it. Me too. Uh, it's, the last, it's the last Freddy movie, well, until Wes Craven came back, it's the last one where he's actually scary. He's not just a comedy character anymore. Um but there's a, there's there's something to to that sort of body horror aspect that is in that film too makes me mm -hmm. wonder, which also yeah. kind of evokes Cronenberg in fairness as well. But yeah, definitely sure. that that sense of not being able to trust your body and not not knowing your own identity and so which plays into the kind of sexual politics that are very very foregrounded, they're not subtle, they're <laughs> very foregrounded in Nightmare on Elm Street too, which is uh, oh yeah. You know, uh, one of the reasons that it's very divisive, a lot of people can't quite cope with that, but I, I, I kind of love it. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm a big, big fan of Elm Street too, personally. Nice, nice. Well, uh, what do you got for your next one, Troy? 
Well, um, actually, I, I will go with the Hateful Eight. And, uh, you know, we were talking about it before, obviously, we talked about the music, um, kind of touched on the paranoia aspect, which is definitely part of this film as well. This, this and Reservoir Dogs are the two Tarantino movies that could work really well as stage plays. Um, interestingly enough, for a film that was shot in 70 millimeter, <laughs> for some <laughs> reason, shot in 70 millimeter, um, you know, a, a lot of it takes place in that sort of claustrophobic cabin. But it's also, in terms of the thing, the influence on the thing, we can consider the snowy setting, which is also reminiscent of uh, Sergio Kobuchi's great uh, spaghetti western, uh, The Great Silence with Klaus Kinski, which, of course, yeah. is an inspiration on a film with another great mm -hmm. Ennio Morricone score, one of like 3,000 scores that he did. <laughs> um, but we also have to consider the cast, which is headed by Kurt Russell, um, one of his best performances. And, uh, you know... Um, I, I I don't suppose I, you know, I'm not complaining that he's not in the entire film, but I remember being shocked when I first saw it that he exited the film, particularly the way that he does. <laughs> so uh, it, probably the, the film's most shocking set piece, really, which is, um, sure. yeah, yeah, we don't expect to see that happen to Kurt Rose. At least I don't. But those elements definitely also help, I think, to contribute to a very, uh, thing and, and sort of general kind of carpenter kind of vibe to that particular film. Sweet, sweet. Well, I, I just realized that it was, uh, it was supposed to be my turn again. Uh, <laughs> mixed up the order there. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to go for my last one. Uh, I'm going to, I did two pretty mainstreamish movies, so I'm going to mix it up a little bit, go with a, a little indie sci-fi from 2013 from director James Ward Burkett. It's called Coherence. Something I just saw earlier this year while, you know, stuck in quarantine and seeing all kinds of movies that I never would have seen otherwise. But uh, it's this interesting film, very different from the thing, really. But it's about this, uh, these people having a dinner party uh, in a house. And it turns out that there's basically this unexplained uh, other dimension happening in another house with the same people. And they're, they end up like mixing together at certain at a certain point in the movie and then it starts becoming a matter of not knowing who is who uh if they're actually from you know the original dimension or from a different one and uh it, it becomes very very confusing very weird and uh it's just a really cool movie with an interesting sci-fi conceit to it and I think the whole idea of not knowing who is who, as well as kind of being stuck because they are in the middle of a, a major event where they're kind of stuck in their house and they're not sure if they can really leave, really just kind of adds to that paranoia uh, that is a major you know, factor with the thing. Nice. Good pull. I've never seen that one. It's um, a cool movie. I'm writing it down. I'm definitely going to find that one. Have you seen that one, Troy? You know, you got me again. I have not seen that one. Okay. Well, hey. hey. I'm definitely going to check out uh, what what was the one uh, that Tony brought up? Um, the Hidden. The Hidden. Yeah, yeah. I got to check that movie out. Yeah, that one's really fun. It's high action, too. Yeah. Well, right on. I, I think that does it uh, with the pieces here. And I, I do want to mention real quick before we move on and talk a little bit more about the book, we did bring up the thing on a few previous episodes. They included Color Out of Space. It Chapter 2, and just last week, The Wolf of Snow Hollow. So uh, add those to the list of some movies uh, inspired by the thing. Nice. I, I actually had Color Out of Space, uh, both versions. There's a 2010, I believe, German version. And right. then uh, 
of course the Richard Stanley Nicolas Cage version. I had mm. those as 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 possible mentions. Nice. Um, I also would like to point out. I don't know if either of you have seen uh, Larry Fessenden's The Last Winter, uh, starring Ron Perlman, mm-hmm. but that one takes place. It's an Arctic. Uh, uh, oil refinery, I believe, or they find, you know, this this shack where something terrible's happened, where everything's been decimated. Um, this one isn't so much an alien, but it incorporates the uh, Native American myth of the Wendigo. It uh, it has the paranoia of not knowing who's been taken by the spirit of the Wendigo, and even has kind of that mm-hmm. similar ambiguous ending where there's a possibility that the the force is going to spread it spread into humanity at large um i thought that one deserved a little bit of a nod too but sure, God, you yeah, know, i hadn't seen that there's so many different like especially with regards to alien takeovers and with the body transformations i mean you got things like uh wicked city the japanese film even akira uh, the faculty, they've got an alien test scene in the faculty. Oh, definitely. So it's uh, the mist in there, the, the Frank Darabont film as well. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Not so with a very uh, kind of uh, cool science fiction monster element to it as well, but another movie with a group of people sort of banded together in a claustrophobic location and, uh, you know, turning amongst them themselves, you know, the sort of religious zealots, you know, form their own little faction and so forth. And it's, uh, Really, one of the uh, you know stronger Stephen King movies, certainly of more recent years. It's definitely and speaking of Stephen King as well, the second uh, half of it has a very overt uh, homage to one of the most famous sequences in The Thing, which is definitely uh, leads to the classic. You know, you've got to be fucking kidding me moment that uh, yeah. everybody <laughs> remembers. So yeah, that's a, that's Absolutely. definitely an inspiration too. I'll throw in one more, I guess. Uh, while we're at it, uh, a, a- a huge blockbuster thing that happens in actually a lot of movies, but the one I thought of is independence day. Uh, at any time that you're doing a, a, a icky gross, like autopsy of the alien that they discovered, yeah, you know, which happens in so many of these kind of movies, you know? Right. Yeah. The, the, uh, the thing has one of the, maybe the most unforgettable alien autopsy that I can think of It is with Wilford Brimley, taking that apart and breaking it down. Oh, it's gruesome. <laughs> <laughs> so good. So good. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that about does it here. Let's talk a little more about John Carpenter before we wrap this up. Um, the book, Assault on the System, the Nonconformist Cinema of John Carpenter. I mean, first question, Troy, is why, I mean, you kind of touched on it a little bit in the intro, but why now? As far as making a book on John Carpenter, what made you think that this is the right moment to uh, to go back and, and get into this book? I think it was kind of the elephant in the room for a while for me that, you know, as, as silly as that may sound, it was just something I knew I really wanted to do. Um, I knew it was something that really meant something to me, and I wanted to have an opportunity to pay that sort of tribute to him, um, you know, Honestly, too, while he's still with us, um, you know, most sure. of my books have been about dead people. So this is a rarity, um, you know, to, to do one that's you know, involving somebody who's still around and wanting to pay tribute. And, I, you know, I think it was just as simple as, you know, I, down through the years, I thought about doing it about close to 20 years ago. 
as my mm -hmm. follow-up to my first book, and there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm for the idea at the time, and so I kind of just, you know, put it on the shelf and continued gathering materials down through the years, all, any kind of articles, books, um, little bits of trivia that I amassed here and there, and just kind of put everything aside, knew that one of these days, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and, and do this book, and then this stuff will come in handy, which it did. Um, so when I finally sat down to do it, it was actually very easy for me to do. It was very simple, and uh, it was one of the actually one of the smoothest projects I've ever done in terms of not just the writing of it, but all, then also the actual final assembly of it as well, which is all, all due to Tony, uh, who, who really... Um, you know, put forth a valiant effort during a difficult time and a difficult mm -hmm. year for all of us uh, to get this thing out there. And uh, yeah, it just was something that I knew I really wanted to do. And I'm very, very glad that I finally buckled down and actually did it. <laughs> nice. Uh, th this is a question really for both of you, I think. Um, uh, we'll start with you, Troy, and then Tony. But do you think now, uh, you know, especially with the book coming out, uh, do you think Carpenter is maybe more popular now, like with with a little bit of looking back on his career and and everybody like kind of having that you know the whole retro thing, but then also with him being out there with new music and touring and stuff. Like, do you think he's having like a resurgence in a way? Yeah, I think in many respects that's true. I mean, fans are very fickle, and uh, it's always amazed me how vicious fans can be whenever their favorite artists disappoint them. <laughs> um, I'm reminded of how Dario Argento started getting savaged in the 90s and, and how people just still gleefully savage him. Um, it makes me depressed to see a bad Argento film, or at least what I consider to be a bad Argento film, but it doesn't make me love him any less because, you know, he still made all these great films. Sure. And th there was a kind of a backlash against Carpenter as well in the 90s. And, uh, right. I'm not going to say that everything he's made has been on the same tier, but I really don't think that he had the same kind of shocking decline that somebody like Argeno had or that Toby Hooper had. Um, mm. Where Toby Hooper, after after Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two in, in 1986, you know, apart from some television work here and there, most of his stuff after this is just garbage. And I don't, you know, there are a lot yeah. of theories as to why too much substance abuse probably didn't help him. Mm. Um, he just kind of lost that talent. I don't think Carpenter ever did. I think he continued to make good films. Some of them were compromised, as I discuss in the book, by, you know, being rushed through uh, really ridiculous post-production schedules and so forth. A lot of compromises kind of killed his enthusiasm for certain projects. But, I mean, yeah, there are a couple of his films that I don't like, but I don't think that any of his films are totally worthless. Um, so the fans, you know, that tendency to want to sort of dismiss and, uh, say, oh, he hasn't made anything good since they live. I mean, that's, that's bullshit as far as I'm concerned. But I do think, you know, walking away from films, not really doing much over the past 20 years, a couple of episodes of Masters of Horror, which definitely proved that he's still got it. Hell yeah. And, yeah. uh, a feature called The Ward, which is unfortunately not a very good script but it's actually a very well directed movie if you can look at it in those terms there's there's good stuff in it um i think not churning out a lot of, of dreck maybe has helped to a certain extent but now he's enjoying himself doing the music and people are appreciative of the music and now everybody's got halloween fever again with the reboot of the series two years ago and now we're continuing into a couple more films and he's back in it um, yeah. You know, after bitching on the sidelines for years about how pointless these movies were, um, they're giving him money to go in and do the music. And 
you know, I wasn't the world's biggest fan of the 2018 Halloween, but I loved his music for the film. So I'll continue to watch them if he continues to score them. So I do think that there is a, a certain, I wouldn't say it's just nostalgia, but definitely there's a greater appreciation to be able to look back and say, you know, this guy is a really good filmmaker and we really should respect that body of work. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And say what you will about all the just onslaught of Halloween sequels that, you know, have over the years made me roll my eyes probably just as much, if not more than Carpenter, you know, it, it still speaks to the fact that in 1978, he created something special that has really stayed with horror fans for generation after generation. And it's something they can't and don't really want to let go of. It's true. There was something in that film. Uh, he was very inspired by the Italian Jallo films. Uh, he, he loves uh, Dario Argento in particular. He also admires the work of Bava. And he took that kind of formula, stripped it down to its bare essentials, and made the ultimate scare machine. And it's a film that doesn't really date, even though it's, yes, it's 1978, the fashions have dated perhaps, but it's not a special effects film. So it's not a movie that looks, you know, quote-unquote cheesy, although I hate that term with a passion. It doesn't look cheesy nowadays. It, it's kind of timeless, and it still works because, again, the timing is so good. The scares work because of his time and the timing comes down, I think to his uh, background in music. Yeah, for mm -hmm. sure. Well, uh, one other question about the book, uh, you know, it's over 400 pages. Uh, it, is there any major thing that you didn't get a chance to explore uh, carpenter related while working on this? Not really anything in particular. I, I would have liked and, and welcomed him to have had more interviews. I did try to get some people, uh, certain people didn't work out. Uh, Tommy Lee Wallace nearly worked out, but then he didn't, unfortunately. Uh, the same with uh, Alan Howarth. Adrian Barbeau expressed an interest, but then, you know, people get busy. And it's also been a weird year, let's face it. So sure. um, a lot of people, I was interested in trying to get Gary Kibbe. I couldn't get a lead on him. He was a cinematographer to Carpenter use from Prince of Darkness onward, but um, he died earlier this year, so presumably he wasn't in a, in a great way anyway. So I would have liked to have had more if I could have gotten them. And, and some people were just talked out. They just don't want to talk about it anymore. Richard Kobritz, for example, the producer of Someone's Watching Me and, and uh, uh, Christine is just, you know, he'd been there and done that too many times, doesn't want to talk about it anymore. Um, which is why I was particularly thrilled that John himself was willing to talk to me because, you know, you do tend to get tired of answering the same questions all the time. So, um, no, I, I, you know, if, if I could have gotten some more interviews, that would have been great. I would have loved to have included them, but I'm, I'm glad we got what we got. And I can say, I, I think it does what I wanted it to do. Awesome. Very cool. Well, uh, I always ask my guests when we wrap these things up, if there's a movie they watched recently that they'd like to recommend to our listeners, Tony, let's go with you first. Is there something you saw recently you'd like to recommend? I would like to recommend two films, actually. I uh, saw them for the Sin City Horror Fest. Okay. Uh, one of them is uh, Jeff Wedding's film, Tennessee Gothic, oh, which yeah. was uh, it was actually shot on film, uh, independent, low-budget horror movie shot on film. That alone wow. is worth watching it for. I've but seen that. the fact that it it is a it's an adaptation of an old Ray Russell short story mm -hmm. about a strange woman that uh, is rescued by a father and son, 
and she stays with them on their farm and things get strange. That movie is, is creepy. It's hilarious. It's exciting. Everything about it is a delight. And the other film I would like to mention is Joe Badon's Sister Tempest, which is a bit more uh, artsy-fartsy, if you will, but there's really nothing like it. It's about a woman who is dealing with the disappearance of her sister and strange hallucinations begin intruding on her life. And it would take me an hour to describe it in more detail than that. But both of those movies are some of the best I've seen in quite a while. So I highly recommend Tennessee Gothic and Sister Tempest. Right on. Uh, Troy, what do you got? Well, I can second the recommendation of Tennessee Gothic because Jeff was kind enough to provide me with a copy of it. And uh, yeah, it's good stuff. I'm a little behind the times by comparison, so I can talk about older stuff <laughs> that I've watched, uh, revisited for the umpteenth millionth time. I'm actually working on a book about the film Alice Sweet Alice, uh, also known as Communion, also known as Holy Terror from 1976. Um Anybody who has not seen that film by this time is highly recommended to go and check it out. It's it's really one of the great American horror thrillers of the 70s and uh, plays very much like a giallo. Uh, so if you're into those films in particular, it's, it's well worth checking out. As far as anything else goes, you know, like so many people, I've been working my way through the Friday the 13th set through Shout Factory, and uh, I still retain a lot of affection for for at least the first eight films, uh, which is, I guess, not such a bad run, but you know, oh. I wouldn't say any of them are great, but I like them, I enjoy them, and I have a irrational enjoyment, perhaps, of Part 5, which most people seem to yes. hate. Yes, um, yes, Part it's, 5. It's the one that does something different. And this, Shout it's, out. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, snow flurries up your nose. That says it all. Yeah. But, um, uh, in terms of something more recent, it's not a horror thing, but a, a thriller that is quite good. It's not a film, but a, a TV series that I finally am catching up with. The first season of True Detective I've been watching. And, uh, oh, that's good Fantastic. stuff. Good stuff. Oh, yeah. So are you still in the middle of that? Of True Detective? Yeah, the first season. I am on episode, well, I finished the first six episodes. So I'm down to the last two. Okay, well, let's talk once you've seen those last two, because, wow. (laughs) I'm intrigued. (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, I think that does it for uh, this. This was great, guys. Why don't you tell people, Troy, where they can find the book? Oh, you can find all of my books on Amazon. That's quite a long list that I won't bore you with, but uh, that (laughs) includes Assault on the System, The Nonconformist Cinema of John Carpenter, there is a color version, which has a price that is making some people uncomfortable, but it's not unreasonable, I will say. And uh, there's also a cheaper black and white version that we made available just for those people who can't afford the uh, more pricey black and white version or more uh, more pricey color version, I should say. Right. Actually, when I checked yesterday, Amazon had discounted the color version by about 15 bucks. So if you want to save some money, yeah, jump over and get it now. Well, there you go. Nice. Nice. Hell yeah. Tony, why don't you tell people where they can find you and uh, everything you're up to? Usually you can find me and my goings on on Facebook. Uh, uh, wangschop.com is the uh, link that'll take you directly to the Wangschop Facebook page. And I try and make sure that I'm vocal about any film related fun that even if you know it has nothing to do with what we're publishing i we we try and shout out films that we love because that's what we're all about is 
we don't we don't like to uh bash films we like to recommend films so we generally tend to say you know if you don't if you don't like a movie don't write about it we're here to recommend so the the rest of the internet does a really really good job of bashing on films so that job's already taken so right. we figured we'll just recommend stuff we love. I agree so much. That's that's the beauty of uh, I I feel that's the beauty of this podcast is is talking about all these great movies for people to go check out if they like the movie we're talking about. So. Absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, thank you guys so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, it was a great time talking about the thing. I I've been wanting to uh, do an episode specifically on this movie for a long time, so it's just great that this book just happened to come out and we were able to do this. So thank you both for joining me. Thanks for having us on. Yes, thank you. Did you like The Parent Trap where two young Lindsay Lohans discover their estranged twin sisters at a summer camp and switch places? Then you might also like young camp counselors being stalked and murdered one by one by a masked assailant in Friday the 13th. Did you like reporter Drew Barrymore going undercover as a high school student to get a good story and never been kissed? Then you might also like FBI agent Johnny Utah infiltrating a clique of surfers who moonlight as bank robbers in Point Break. Listen to You Might Also Like, a podcast where you receive the movie suggestions you didn't know you needed, hosted by me, Luke Spaulding, to get movie suggestions like these and many more absurd but surprisingly helpful recommendations. Each week I'll review two movies that are very different but surprisingly linked, and you might like both of them. I said might. Listen for new episodes every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you may get your podcasts. And then find me on social media at You Might Also Like Pod. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation about The Thing. Make sure to check out that book, Assault on the System, The Nonconformist Cinema of John Carpenter. It is available on Amazon. There is a link in the show notes Check it out. It looks awesome. I'm planning on ordering a copy myself, actually, after I finish getting this thing uploaded in the future, which, now that you're listening to it, is the past. Why do I uh, fascinate myself with that every week, it seems like? Anyway, uh, if you enjoy piecing it together, I would appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us over on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. I always like getting feedback on the show. I love hearing what people think. We just got a really nice review the other day on Apple Podcasts. Nice five stars with a great little paragraph long little thing about how much the person liked the show and why they liked the show. And I like to hear that stuff. So uh, yeah, rate and review us. You could also follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. And don't forget that we also have a Patreon. It's the Produced by David Rosen Patreon, where I upload a whole bunch of bonus content from my music career, a bunch of my music stuff, and uh, also advanced episodes of Piecing It Together, bonus episodes of both Piecing It Together and Awesome Movie Year. Also going to be posting some All Rice No Beans stuff sometime really soon. So uh, lots of great content over there on the Patreon. So if you really enjoy the show, you know, if you... If you just enjoy the show, you could subscribe, rate and review, all that stuff. If you really enjoy, sign up for the Patreon. We'd love it. And we would make a whole lot more content if we get some more subscribers over there. So go check that out. And uh, yeah, I guess that does it for this week. I am still promoting my new album, David Rosen. And by the way, speaking of uh, John Carpenter, you know, I, I remember my when my first album, Echoes in the Dark, came out. 
Uh, I, I got a really awesome review in the Las Vegas Review Journal uh, written by Jason Bracelin, a music critic over there at the Review Journal. And I, I'll never forget that he wrote, it unfolds like a lost John Carpenter score, which is just like the coolest, best comment ever that anybody could ask for as a musician and uh so yeah i've got this new album david rosen coming out but i'm going to go back to that album the first album echoes in the dark uh and play one of the songs that i think he was probably talking about when he invoked the name john carpenter this is a track called lights in the sky hope you enjoy it there is a really cool music video for it available on my website by davidrosen.com so check that out and while you're there you can check out more info about the new album david rosen so this is lights in the sky thanks as always for listening we'll be back with more piecing it together coming up real soon
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.